So somebody heard this sermon in the first service and they left a note in case you're hungry during the sermon and I have candy. It's good to be me today. So um, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago now, I had the opportunity to go to Houston and watch a series of baseball games, um, college baseball that is. It was at Minute Maid Park and kind of a round robin tournament between some of the SEC teams. You know, JV teams like LSU and Texas A&M and, and some of the big 12 teams like Baylor and, well, like Baylor. And so um, anyway, it was good. And while I was there, I had the, <laughs> um, I, I was, you can't go to a baseball game without eating baseball food, right? So I was standing in line to get some nachos and this, uh, this guy in front of me got something that I thought uh, looked like it might be worth trying. And actually, to be honest with you, they served these nachos for only $399.48. You could get a box of nachos, not a box, but they served it in a Houston Astros batting helmet. Plastic, hard plastic, and they just... So I thought, my grandson needs one of those hats. <laughs> so... It's cool being a granddad because you get to buy toys that you get to play with till the grandkid comes around. But anyway, so I got him this batting helmet full of nachos, and they started loading this stuff in there. And I thought, man, that is a death by nachos order if there ever was one. They just, of course, it's a full-size batting helmet. And so they just load nachos in the bottom and then cheese on top of that and then chili on top of that and then more nachos and more cheese and more. And finally, I told him, look, just stop. I'm not eating all of that you've already put in there. Uh, which pushes me, by the way, it's fair time, you know, that Southeast Texas Fair is uh, up and growing. And uh, yesterday, last night to be exact, Teresa and I were watching the local news and there was a, 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 um, a spot, you know, it's, it's a, a news article that the TV station was, was pulling off there and it was about the fair, but it wasn't really about the fair, it was about the food at the fair. And I thought, that's how you know you're in Southeast Texas, because they don't really do a whole story on the games and the rodeo and all that. They, they do a story on the food. It's good. It's, it's good to be us these days. That all lays the foundation for us today, today as I ask you the question, how hungry are you? I have to say, though, that I have to just kind of underscore that I think it's hard for us as Americans, at least... Uh, middle-class Americans, to understand hunger. I know that there are people in America who are hungry. There's no question about that. But for the most part, we don't really get to the point of being really hungry. The Oxford English Dictionary defines hunger as the uneasy or the painful sensation that is caused by want of food. It is a craving, appetite, it is the want or the scarcity of food in a particular country. And finally, they say it is a strong desire or craving. I, I also operate not just the fact that we don't really totally understand hunger. Um, most of us don't experience true hunger like we could talk about. For instance, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization estimates that of the world's 7.3 billion people, 795 million uh, are suffering from chronic undernourishment. 
That's one out of every nine people suffer from chronic undernourishment. And just to make the point a little harder for us, of those uh, 795 million, only 11 million are undernourished in developed countries. It's hard for us to really understand hunger. Now, we can talk about World Hunger Day and all of those kind of things, and Baptists have a long history of being concerned about those kind of social realities in our time. But today, I want to use that as a launching pad to underscore this statement. As hard as it is for us to understand hunger in middle-class America, the reality is that when we talk of spiritual hunger, I would say that our churches epidemically are full of people who are spiritually undernourished. That's an interesting point of reference and a discussion for us because we come to this particular passage of Scripture in John chapter 6, And we're going to actually begin reading back in verse 22 in just a few moments. But I want to set the scene for you so that we can make sure that we pull it all together. And I know that there's bad weather coming, so I intend to pull this way down this morning and I'll kind of go over the top of it, um, even from what I did in the earlier service so that we can get you out of here before some of those storms hit. But as we come to this passage, what we find is John is picking up on something that he started. Now, we've been working our way through the seven miracles or the signs in John's gospel that show that Jesus is more than just a regular guy. He's not your average person. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And so his activity, the signs and the miracles that he has performed, push us to make a decision about whether he really is sent from God or not. That's John's approach with this. And it's pushed us into these questions. Do you believe in Jesus? And if you do, how much do you believe in him? And we've gone through seven different signs in John's gospel. On Easter Sunday, we'll pick up the eighth sign, which is resurrection. But now we're going to go backwards into John's gospel. We're going to start tracking our way through, not with what Jesus did, but with what Jesus claimed. Because seven different times in a formal way, Jesus makes an I am statement. It is an I am statement that harkens his hearers back to the Old Testament, to where God deals with Abraham, to where God deals with Moses and those who come after him. And we will find that Jesus, even before today's passage of Scripture is over, Jesus definitively takes his stand as the very Son of God sent by God for a particular purpose. That's a a heady claim. And if he can't back it up, then he's a huge fraud. But as I'm going to try to argue for you, from experience and from the text, uh, he can back it up. He is, in fact, who he claimed to be. And in this first unveiling of the I am statements in John's gospel, we find that Jesus claims to be, he calls himself the bread of life. But before we can get to that, let's make sure we get the context right. Because in John's gospel, the sixth chapter, we have two of those seven signs. The first one is the feeding of the, of the multitudes on the hillside. You remember that? And they're gathered there and the evening is coming and his disciples come and say, what about all these people? We should send them home. Jesus says, no, let's feed them. And in the process of that, Jesus takes just a handful of stuff, five loaves and two fish, and he heals, I mean, excuse me, feeds the multitudes. You remember hard on the heels of that, he takes his disciples, and he sends them away. 
Because the crowds want to make him king. I mean, after all, this is the best uh, meal plan that you could hope for. They want to make him king, and Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be subject to that, so he pushes them away, tells them to get the boat and head over to the other side. He goes off to pray, and in the middle of the night, he sees them. Remember that? And they're struggling against the waves, and so he goes walking across the water to them. Two of the seven signs in John chapter 6, and that's the setting for this first I am statement. So we pick up reading in John chapter 6, verse 22. And as we do this, one more interruption before I read. Uh, I started to preach a sermon today about how we wrongly follow Jesus. Because throughout the words that we're about to read, you'll find that these people are intent on following Jesus on their own terms. Okay, That's the wrong way to approach it. And they're intent on having him do their bidding and do what they want him to do. And that makes them God, not him. And so Jesus will regularly check them in their thinking and set the record straight with them. And so we pick up in verse 22. And on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus checks them the first time. Hey, we didn't know you came over here. How did it go? It's almost as if they're, they're playing, playing buddy-buddy with him and Jesus calls them on it. You're only here because I fed you. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the God, on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, they try to take the upper hand on him again, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Well, it seems straightforward enough. It seems like things are going fairly well. They're having a dialogue and Jesus is pointing them to the truth. The problem is he keeps throwing them and they don't catch them. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And let's stop here for just a moment and make sure that we pull all of this together. Because if you really get behind this question, you'll see that they're trying to push him into something and they're trying to control the relationship. Because before this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, and before we get to this story that we're reading today, was that very set of signs that we talked about on the front end. Jesus had fed them already. There's your sign. Jesus had walked on the water. They probably didn't know about that, or at least it's possible they didn't know about the walking on the water part of it. Uh, I'm sure his disciples were still talking about it though. We're talking about hours away from one of the great miracles that they would have ever experienced. And now that Jesus pushes them out of their own approach to following him, which is to make him what they want him to be. Oh, by the way, that's ours to wear. Because in our day, all of Christendom seems 
to want to make Jesus into what we want him to be. And when he doesn't play nicely with us, then somehow we push that back and it's a character of God that is on trial. And so these people are trying to push on Jesus what they want him to be. Jesus checks them on that and calls them on that. And so now they say, so give us a sign. Give us a reason to believe. Hello, where were you yesterday? Verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And before I get to Jesus' response to that, let's make sure we get what's going on here. Now these, these people are going to push back to their Old what we would call Old Testament heritage. And, and that series of events as the children of Israel were coming out of captivity in Egypt and wandering through the wilderness. And they were griping and complaining. Oh, don't you see how these people really are descendants of those? Griping and complaining and trying to push God into their own mold. We came out here to die from hunger. And so God sends manna for them. So now they push back to that. They, they push Jesus into a corner. They think they've got him. Okay, so give us a sign. Give us a reason to believe in you. And if you can give us a reason to, well, why don't you just keep it in this particular vein? Why don't you do the manna thing? Isn't it interesting how their hearts are still set on food? Must have been 21st century Americans. They must have been. Put it into the manna category. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Interesting choice of words there. My father. Jesus identifies himself as the son of God here, which is enough to send the truly orthodox Jew over the edge. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. In other words, be our king. Make it happen. Wrong following. And Jesus said to them, and here's the statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I'm going to stop reading there because we could actually go all the way through verse 71, and I'll pull in a couple of verses before it's over with. But let me take this little piece and let's pull it down so that we can hang on to it really well before we go today. See, the reality is that we're all created for fellowship with God, for a relationship with God and for fellowship with God. And we go back to the Old Testament, we go back to the book of Genesis and the, and the creation account where we find Adam and Eve as they're there in the garden. And at one point we find this statement that says, in the, and, the, and God came and he walked among in the garden in the cool of the evening. And the picture there is God's creation is all right as God fellowships in relationship with his created order, especially Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve made a fateful choice that affects every single one of us. We're created for a relationship with God, but our sin choice and all of us born into the penalty of sin separates us from God. And so what Jesus is doing as he comes to this passage is he's letting it be known that he in fact comes from God and God is the one who has sent him in order to fix the problem. 
Let me come back to that problem again because the sin nature that we all have leaves us with this insatiable hunger. Not, not for food, although food may be one of those things that we try to look to to fill that hunger, but there is that part of us that's created only for relationship with God and until we find our rest in God, we will always be searching for something. And it's very possible that some of us have come in here today and we're in that search and everything we try in life, whether it's making more money or having more power or having more leisure time or having more stuff, and we're always pushing and we start getting involved with people and we're trying to use people to get us what we're after and it just never works. It's because you're created for a fellowship and a relationship with God, and until you find that relationship, it's just empty. You're hungry for that. So we're created that way. And, and, and when we, we start having this hunger, I, I'm looking at these candy bars. This is, this is cruel and unusual punishment. Y'all don't mind if I eat one of these right here. Do you? Let me tell you a candy bar story. <clears throat> See, my wife... Um, she, she's cruel to me sometimes, just so you know. <laughs> Tracy, you just talk amongst yourself down there. You know what I mean? <laughs> See, when Teresa was pregnant with our second child, his name is Colin, uh, we lived in Brownwood, or actually outside of Brownwood, Bangs, Texas, and served in First Baptist Church of Bangs. And um, so Teresa was pregnant, and I was going to seminary, and, um, and she developed gestational diabetes late in her pregnancy. And she did that just to torment me. Um, because what that did was that kept me from eating the kind of foods that I wanted. Okay, because she's on a diet. You know, you had to only certain kind of foods and no, no sugar. And I don't remember what else it was. A lot of vegetables, you know, just that terrible kind of food. And, um, and so um, I, one, of the, one day I just needed a Snickers bar. You, you ever have, you know... Now, we, we have terms for that today. It's called being hangry, right? Um, but I was in one of those deals because we were not doing sweets at our house because of her health condition and uh, supposedly it's good for the baby. And so, okay, I'll play along. And I needed, I needed a Snickers bar in a bad way. And so I was working in the yard, if I remember right, and I thought, okay, I need gas for the mower. I'll just run up to and so I went and got gas, and I went in to pay, because in those days you had to do it that way. And I walked past the candy rack. And my head said, don't do it. But my hunger said, yeah, go ahead. And my hunger said, she didn't have to know. It won't hurt her. It's okay. And my head said, she's going to find out. And my stomach won. Okay, so I bought a candy bar, and I, I didn't, see, this is where I'm too stupid, uh, I didn't eat it before I got home, I took it home, and then I was in the backyard while I was working in the yard, and I was eating on that candy bar, thinking I was going to get, and then I hear, and I look up at the window at the kitchen, and she's looking out while I'm taking a bite of that candy bar. That was, yeah, but be sure your sins will find you out, I think is a verse that goes with that. But that's a picture for us of this hunger for God. Because, you know, all joking aside, a candy bar is a candy bar. 
But when the hunger that drives you in life to use people or things or to accumulate more and more stuff because you're trying to fill an emptiness inside of you that only Jesus Christ can fill. And it causes us to do damage to ourselves and to other people until, unless and until we find the satisfaction of the bread of life, Jesus himself. So this I am statement that Jesus makes steps in and it fills that vacancy. He, to to pull it exactly right, when he says I am the bread of life, the word of, O-F, it's a preposition in English. It carries the weight in this particular interpretation here where he says I am the bread which produces life. This is more than just some Weak illustration that Jesus pulls because he had fed them. Jesus is making a definitive messianic statement that he fulfills the plan of God to fix the relationship that causes death to humanity. I am the bread that produces life. So before we move on, and we're almost through here, but before we move on, let me just say that if you happen to be one of those who wandered in here today or came in here of your own volition and you're on that search and there is an empty part of you and you just can't seem to get it filled and everything you try leaves you wanting in the end, leaves you hungry in the end, let me just tell you that until you come to Jesus Christ and receive the life that he and only he can offer, you'll be hungry all of your life. But when you come to him, he fills that hunger because he's the bread of life. That's what I call the once for all time satisfaction of hunger. Because that's the part, that's the entry level into this life that Jesus offers to us. And it only has to happen One time, you trust Jesus Christ to be who he said he was. All of these signs that these particular people have seen him do, or at least some of them have seen him do, and been direct recipients of in the feeding of the multitudes, those things point out that he's more than just some guy who's a carpenter's son. They're not going to get that because as we read a little bit further in here, they're going to fall back to that. This guy, we know his mom and dad. He's nothing special. Okay, then how do you account for the stuff that he does? But you see, when we use Jesus and we follow him on our terms rather than his, then we don't have to worry about accounting for what he does because we want to make him what we want him to be. Let's read on a little bit further and let's get beyond just this one where he says, I am the bread that produces life because he has more to say to them. But before I leave, last time, if you don't know Jesus as the bread of life who gives you life, then you should not leave this building today until you get that settled. And I would love to introduce him to you and show you how to do that. We'll have a time of invitation later. Me, several other people would be happy to counsel with you and talk to you about that, not try to push you into anything, but to introduce you to life. This is real stuff. And until you find Jesus, you'll just keep being hungry in your life. But it goes further than that. It's more than just that one-time thing. Now Jesus begins to turn the tables on them a little bit. 
And so let's pick up reading, I guess let's just say verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what I just got through explaining. Now, verse 41, the thick-minded Jews. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, hush. Well, more or less. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believe, believes has eternal life, and again, I am the bread of life. Jesus picks up on their whole thing about manna, and he goes a little bit further. But I want to drop down a few verses and get to the really freaky stuff. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Let me just stop there for a second and give you this challenge. Go to work tomorrow and call a meeting of everybody in the office and say, yesterday at church, I ate Jesus' flesh and drank Jesus' blood. See how that goes over in 21st century American life. If you are, you know, you always wanted to be one of these street preachers, get you one of those portable sound systems, go stand at a corner in downtown Beaumont or out at the mall or someplace like that and tell people they need to be eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. See how that plays in our time. This is weird. Unless we get what Jesus is driving at. Let me make sure you get it. This is because first we had that once for all feed where we don't hunger anymore, and now we get to this, what I call the time-after-time feeding. Here's what's driving this for me. If Jesus really does satisfy, as we've talked about, and he is the bread that produces life that we've talked about, and we, most of us in this room, I'm sure, have taken that step of trusting him and, have, and believing in him, as this passage says. And we have eternal life because of that. And our fellowship with God, or excuse me, our relationship with God is cemented because of our trust in Jesus Christ. Most of us have done that. That being the case, why do so many Christian people take that step and they hunger no more and then they begin to live just like they did before they accepted Christ? I'll ask that a different 
different way. Why is it that we seem to have these periods in our Christian life, and our Christian walk, where we're way up here and things are great and we're trusting and we're believing and then other times we're way down here? I heard one guy say one time, it's really not so much how high you jump when you meet Jesus, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. Why do so many Christians have such a hard time walking straight after they hit the ground? And I believe that that's what Jesus is referring to here. There is that eternal hunger that only Jesus can fill. But we're created for relationship and fellowship with God. And Jesus secures the relationship stuff for us. And nothing will change that. But the fellowship part of that, that that is something we have some say about. Let me use this example. By the way, our musicians can come on up because I'm finishing up here. Let me use this as a closing illustration to help you see what I'm talking about. I have three children, um, and they're married, and so that is what it is. But especially with my three children, um, they can decide today that they don't want to have anything to do with me. And if they decide today that they don't want to have anything to do with me, that still does not change the relationship that I have with them. Because biologically, it is scientifically provable that those kids are related to me. The relationship will stand regardless of the decision that they seem to make whether or not we're going to get along. Okay? So they'll always be my children. But the fellowship part of that, we can have things that happen between us that breaks fellowship. I got a phone call this week. My daughter, Lauren, most of you know Lauren. Uh, And so Lauren calls us. She's married. She's got a son. And uh, she calls us to say, Dad, I had a wreck. And my response, my immediate response was, this is my daughter, flesh and blood. And then the next response was, praise God she's married to somebody else and she's not my responsibility now. (laughs) Now, you see, that's a fellowship problem. Now, if she knew I said that, so if I want her to know I said that, you let me tell her, okay? Y'all don't tell her I said that. But see, we can have these things where the people that we're related to, we may not get along real well. I tell you, I get along a lot better now with my three kids than I did when they were 17 years old. I'd have killed them, and I'd have told God I killed them. It would have been all right. He He wouldn't have blamed me one bit for killing them. You see what I see? The difference between a relationship. Jesus purchased the relationship possibility for us. He's the bread that produces life. But now when he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, now we're talking about the daily hunger, the daily sufficiency of Christ. And part of the reason I say that is because the verbs in that section that we just got through reading are all present tense. Where we would expect them to be past tense. Okay, so I did this for you and so now you have this. Now he's saying you have to keep on eating my flesh and keep on drinking my blood. And so the picture that he has is this is an ongoing hunger. So I started off today and I asked you, are you hungry? Are you hungry for the food at the fair? More importantly... Are you hungry 
for the presence of Jesus in your life. If I had decided to take this passage the way I started to, which was to show how wrongly they were following Jesus, it would have led us to right where we are right now. And that is when we are in this relationship with Jesus and the fellowship that we have is always about us and our agenda, then we join these people and we're wrong. Because if he really is who he says he is, then he's God. And he gets to say, here's how the relationship goes. And so what he says is, be hungry. I have a friend, great friend of mine, probably one of my best friends of all time. And he's fond of saying, hey, I'm on a two-hour feeding schedule. Every two hours I need to eat something. It's not a bad plan spiritually. If you're hungry enough spiritually that you need to spend time with Jesus every couple of hours, you're on the right track. But if you can go weeks without being hungry for his presence, something's wrong. How is it with you? Let's pray. So, Father, we come to close a difficult passage that is full of all kinds of challenges for us. And we ask you to complete this message in our hearts. Drive us to your heart. Help us to find the truth of these words, these claims that Jesus makes. I am the bread which produces life. And if you are to live rightly, you need Have your way with us today. Change lives for your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.